Welcome. You're listening to Sanseat. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd. Today's episode of Sanseet is brought to you by Langevin and Axison Marketing. Langevin and Axison Marketing specializes in social media promotion and public relations. Langevin and Axison Marketing works with campaigns that offers products, books, and services to inspire and improve their lives. They focus on small spiritual businesses, authors, and teachers. Their clients have high quality products and services that they are proud to promote. If you have a business that has the potential to grow, go to Langevin and Axison Marketing and receive 10% off the first month of service. Contact Langevin and Axison Marketing and refer to Sanseed Ship. Hello and welcome. On today's show of Sanseed, we have Claire Litcher. She is a aromatherapist and has a aromatherapy oil company called 5B Aromatics. Hello, Claire, and welcome to the show today. How are you doing today? Hi, Erin. Great. Thank you. Tell us about how you got into oils and aromatherapy. Well, let's see. In 1987, I started studying both Chinese and Western herbs. And in 1991, I moved to Arizona. And um, I, the first thing I did was enroll in a native plant class. And I took a couple books along with me that were um, ethnobotanical books so that as I was learning the plants, I started to learn the medicinal qualities of the plants as well. And um, then I met my husband and he and I did lots of hiking together and um, he has now become a botanist. Um, but at the time, at, at the time, we were just starting to really learn and kind of dive deep into the native plants. And in you know, on our hikes and in our explorations and in working with the plants, we realized that there were a lot of aromatic plants in our region and in the entire Southwest. And we wondered why, you know, when you looked at at the essential oils that you would find in health food stores or markets that you never saw any of these plants. So it takes us a while to get around to things. So we had this conversation for probably about eight years. And then we finally, um, we took an aromatherapy weekend course together and just got so excited about it that we went out and bought a small five-gallon copper distiller. And so we started working with some of the, the herbaceous plants and shrubs and um, just in our yard and in the, the close local area. And we worked with this distiller for about two years and really enjoyed ourselves. And um, there were, you know, we got enough essential oil from this size of a distiller that, that it continued to um, inspire our efforts and experiments. And um, at a certain point, we realized that we really wanted to be able to work with the trees. And you need to do a much larger volume of plant material than, than five gallons worth. Um, that would You could produce a really nice hydrosol with five gallons. But um, oh, actually, I should probably talk in liters. Um, that would be about 25, no, about 20 liters. Um, you could make a nice hydrosol with that size, but your oil, oil production from the trees that where you're working with the needles um, would be very low. So, so we bought a 55-gallon drum stainless steel distiller. It's actually stainless steel and glass. And I think we bought that in 2007 or 8. And since that time, we've worked with 86 different species of plants in our area. Um, most of them are native plants. Some have been cultivated, um, quite a few of them just in our own garden and yard. 
Um, but the majority of what we do is work with the native plants. And um, we just have enjoyed ourselves immensely with this. And, um, and it's been a, a really inspiring long-term research project for us because um, even though there's a, a long ethnobotanical history of medicinal use of these plants, there's, well, almost no essential oils were distilled from these plants in the past. And so um, we've had to figure out how to use a lot of these. And the ways that we've done that is, one, by just looking at, at how they've been used traditionally. And generally, you can draw the same conclusions about how you would use the essential oils. And then we've also had chemical analysis done of almost all of the plants that we've distilled. And um, and that can show you that, I mean, the, looking at the chemistry can show you what some of the medicinal benefits might be as well. So between those two things and our own experience and feedback and testimonial from other people, we've slowly been able to build up just like a, a repertoire of essential oils. And so we often give workshops and, and do short-term apprenticeships. And it's just grown in many ways that I would have never dreamed. What is a distiller? The basic principle is that you have a source of heat that, um, that heats water. And that heated water or that steam is below your plant material. And so in, in the case of our stainless steel distiller, we have a, step, a separate steam generator and a hose that connects that steam generator to the bottom of the retort, which is the 55-gallon drum, and which contains the plant material. And as the steam passes through the plant material, it volatilizes the essential oils from the plants. And the steam then carries these tiny, tiny droplets of oil through another, another hose that takes it to a glass distiller. And um, there are all kinds of different designs for essential oil distillers. They come in glass and stainless steel and copper. And they're even done in India, they use clay pots. So then as the steam carries the essential oil into the condenser, then it, it condenses it back down into water, or not water, but um, what we call distillate. And the distillate is a combination of hydrosol and essential oil. And because water and oil don't mix, your oil will either float on top of the water after it's been recondensed or the hydrosol, um, or it will sink to the bottom. It depends on the weight of the essential oil. Um, most of the essential oils in our area are lighter in wa than water and they float on the surface of the hydrosol. But when you start working with, um, with spices and some woods and roots, some of those tend to be heavier than the hydrosol, and those will sink to the bottom. So that's basically what, a, what an essential oil distiller is. How long does it take you to make from the plant to oils? Oh, that was something that I was going to mention. And um, so I'm, I'm glad that you asked that question because I forgot in the middle of what I was just saying there. It depends very much on the plant material. Um, some of the herbaceous plants have essential oil glands right on the surface of the leaves. Um, so some that we're most familiar with would be something like lavender or melissa. Um, these plants have, they have tiny little essential oil glands. And if you look at them under the microscope, it's quite beautiful. And, and it looks like jewels on the surface of the leaves. So plants like that distill very quickly. Um, in a commercial operation, where they aren't necessarily looking for a complete distillation, but they're looking for the bulk of the essential oil, they may only distill those plants about a half an hour. 
Um, when we do lavender or lavendine, well, actually, lavender will usually distill about three hours because we will distill until there is absolutely no more oil coming from the plant. We've had lavendine distillations last up to seven hours, which is is remarkably long, um, and it, it doesn't happen that way every year. I think this year we distilled maybe four to five hours before the distillation was done. Um, when you start working with the needle oils, such as firs or pines or spruces, the essential oils are held within long tubular-shaped glands within the needle. And these are covered by the waxy coating that's on the surface of the needle. So in order to draw that out and volatize the essential oil, it's a much longer process. Um, usually anywhere from seven to 10 hours before the distillation is complete. And then when you have a heavier material like a wood, those can last up to 24 hours. And um, we work with alligator juniper wood on a fairly regular basis. And um, another wood that we distilled was um, Honduran rosewood, which yielded very little oil whatsoever. But um, the alligator juniper wood yields, um, it has quite a, a large yield, sometimes up to a pound for or um, about a half a liter um, for one distillation. And um, those are very long. They, they last easily 24 hours. But again, it just depends on when the plant material stops yielding the oil. So every so often, we'll take some of the hydrosol and we'll pour it through the central funnel in the condenser. And when you clear out this funnel, then you can observe it and you can see how quickly essential oil is building up again. And if you observe it for five minutes and you see that, that oil has, has collected in that funnel, then we'll continue to let it go. But if we watch it, say, 15 minutes and no oil has concentrated in that funnel, then we'll consider the distillation finished. There are some plants that are even longer distillations. And this, this past spring, I went to Jamaica to teach a series of essential oil distillation workshops. And um, this was a volunteer program through Partners of the Americas, which is funded by USAID. And um, so I was sponsored to go and teach these workshops. And in Jamaica, they have um, wild vetiver that grows everywhere. And I was so excited to try this oil because it's one of my favorite essential oils. And um, so we dug some plants and washed all the, the clay out of the roots. And then we removed the roots from the root bulb and dried them for about a week. And sometimes people dry these up for months but I only had two weeks that I was there, so we dried it for about a week. And I had read that these distillations could be um, anywhere from 36 to 72 hours. And I thought, well, that must be because most, well, pretty much all of the, the um, vetiver distillation Practices are commercial practices, so they're very large scale and they have huge distillers. And um, so I figured, well, that it, that must be the reason for such a long distillation. But it truly is an extremely long distillation. And ours lasted, a, we did this over a 48-hour period. And um, the, the oil came very, very slowly, but it just continued to make the oil. And at a certain point, we just had to shut it down. We couldn't really continue um, distilling anymore because we were working with a smaller distiller and we were needing to use ice to, um, to cool the condenser water. And so at a certain point, it just wasn't practical and we were exhausted. So 
Um, anyways, they, they can last a very long time, and it absolutely depends on your plant material. How do you know when the plant is finished distilling? Well, at that that has to do with um, what I was trying to describe, which is, is difficult to, to describe if you can't actually see the images. But, but it's when, um, when you clear out the, the funnel that is, there's a funnel that's between your condenser and your separator. And that just helps keep all of the distillate from spraying out in all directions. It goes through the funnel. And so as you're producing, as the essential oil is being produced, that funnel will be full of oil. And so what we do is we just clear that funnel out. Say, say we're doing working with um, a fur, and we know that generally the, the furs can be done within um, seven hours. So maybe at about seven hours, we will take some of the hydrosol that's been produced and we'll pour it through that funnel to completely clear the funnel out. And, um, and then we can, we can look and see how much oil is produced within the next five to 15 minutes. And if, if there's some that collects there, then we know that, that we should let it go for another hour or so. And if nothing really collects, then it's done. Is hydrosol um, one of the methods that's used worldwide or is it a method that you guys use? Oh, hydrosol, the hydrosol is the water portion of the distillation process. So it's the, it's the water that was turned into steam that has volatized the essential oils from the plants and then is recondensed back down. But when it's recondensed back down, it contains water-soluble constituents and a small amount of emulsified essential oil. So this, for a long time, um, the hydrosols were somewhat disregarded in terms of their medicinal benefits and qualities. And, and people were distilling mainly for the essential oils. And, um, and initially, I think, you know, people often were focusing on the perfume qualities of the essential oils. And so the hydrosols have been given much more attention and study in the recent years. And it's been found that they have tremendous healing qualities. They can be used internally by diluting them. Um, say you can use maybe a half to a teaspoon of a hydrosol and a cup of warm water and drink this as a tea. It can have remarkable healing benefits. Um, they can be sprayed on the skin for skin care. They can be sprayed in the hair. They can be used as, as cleaning materials. Um, there's a, a huge range of uses for them and they're tremendously beneficial. Is all your oils hydrosol based? Um, well, hydrosol is, is always produced in the essential oil process, and um, there are some that it's interesting how much the, the aroma varies. In some of the hydrosols, there's a very strong connection to the aroma of the essential oil, like lavender, for example. When you smell lavender hydrosol, you know that this has come from a lavender plant. Um, some of them are very different aromatically from the essential oils. And some of the sages, for example, smell nothing at all like the essential oil. So we don't save all of them. Um, some of them smell a bit like, um, like steamed vegetable water. And these are ones that tend not to be as attractive to people. Um, but the ones that, that we know about their medicinal benefits and have nicer aromas, those are usually the ones that we save. And we'll save the first couple of gallons that come off. Um, a much more hydrosol is produced than essential oil. 
in the distillation process. So for an essential oil, say, let's just go back to working with a fur again. Say we work with a fur and we get four or six ounces of essential oil. We might generate five gallons of hydrosol altogether. Usually we'll save the first anywhere from one to two gallons. Um, and those, those first gallons tend to have the best aromatic quality and a high level of the medicinal properties. When you get later and later into the distillation, you're getting deeper into breaking down the plant material and the plant proteins. And, and aromatically, they're not quite as lovely at that point. Um, so... What was your question again? (laughs) (laughs) My my question was just wondering how the distillation can affect the the plants. But I think we'll go on to my next question, which is, can you you, um, drink the the oils? You mentioned putting them in teas. Can you do that? Oh, so for, so with the hydrosols, the hydrosols blend very beautifully with water. Or you know, or in a tea, um, the essential oils do not. They float on the surface of the water, and so something really interesting about the quality of an essential oil is that essential oils are hydrophobic and lipophilic, meaning hydrophobic, meaning they move away from water, which is why they are generally not emulsified in the water, and lipophilic, meaning they go towards fat. So if you put, if you put a drop of an essential oil on a cup of tea or in a cup of tea, it will float on the surface. And then if you take a sip of that tea and it goes into your mouth, it goes towards the mucosal lining or the the fatty layer in your skin and away from the water. So basically, the warm water will very quickly force the essential oil into the tissues of your mouth. And for the most part, this is very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and also, um, it, it t- the taste is overwhelmingly strong. So if a person wants to ingest an essential oil, it needs to be mixed in a fatty substance such as coconut oil or olive or sesame oil. I prefer to use coconut oil, but this is something that has to be done with great care. Um, There's a fair amount of internal usage that's being promoted right now that that I feel is not being done with enough care. Um, Taking 10, 10 drops of any essential oil, um, and this is my opinion again, um, I believe that's too much to take at once. Because being a distiller, I know how much plant material it takes to make that 10 drops of essential oil. It takes a tremendous amount of plant material. And when you think about trying to ingest that much plant material at once, it would make you sick. So when you're able to consider those ratios or relationships, I think it gives you a better picture of the amount of essential oil that should be consumed at one time. Some people believe that you should never consume essential oils. I tend to to be kind of in the middle ground about this, that, that a small amount of, a very small amount which would be, say, one drop per teaspoon or more of a carrier oil, an edible carrier oil, Um, I feel that this is a safe dosage and can be remarkably helpful. And just an example for myself, um, a year and a half ago, we, our family went to Iceland to help set up a distillery there. And we went through four airports before we arrived there, and we were absolutely exhausted. And, of course, I picked up some virus of some kind, 
And we arrived there and I had a sore throat and we had only 10 days. And the last thing that I wanted to do was spend those 10 days sick. So I had brought some yarrow oil with me and I put it in some olive oil and I put one drop per teaspoon and I took this mixture once every one to two hours. And by the second dose, my sore throat was completely gone. And after a good night's rest, I felt completely energized and ready to go. And there's no question in my mind that had I not done that, I was, I was due for being sick for many days, if not the entire time, because it was an acute sore throat. So, you know, there are times where um, I think it's a very appropriate, very beneficial and effective use. And, but I do believe that it needs to be used with caution and not on a regular basis. It's, I, I feel that it's unnecessary to take essential oils internally on a regular basis. Could, could you push other mixtures into that while taking it orally? You can use hydrosol blends and essential oil blends for internal use. Um, but the same rules would apply. So say you mixed three hydrosols together as a medicinal blend, you could use one teaspoon for eight ounces of warm water. Um, Or say you made a blend of three oils, you could use one drop or less in, in a teaspoon of a carrier oil to use internally. So when you, when you put this drop or half drop of essential oil into the carrier oil, The oil, it's fully blended into that carrier and, in that case, very diluted. This protects your mucous membranes, and so it allows you to safely use that oil without burning your mouth or your mucous membranes. The oils that you guys make, are there any oils that you love using every day? Um, One that I use on a fairly regular basis is um, alligator juniper wood. And I use that um, in place of a deodorant. I'll put a drop or two in my hands and then then oftentimes I'll, I'll use another oil with it, maybe one drop of Arizona cork bark fur or something really sweet and lovely. And um, I'll just use that as a, a body deodorant. Um, and then... Then I would say that the rest of the oils that I use really are determined by what I feel my needs are. And if I don't feel any particular need, then I won't use any. Um, There are some times where I just want an, an uplifting aroma, which, you know, may not be a physical need in terms of, um, you know, feeling like I'm fighting off an illness or, or need strengthening, but maybe I need upliftment. So I'll use something that has some some bright top notes, like maybe a Douglas fir that has tangerine top notes, or I might use a floral maceration that I've made. I've made them um, from cliff rose flowers and desert verbena flowers, and also from honeysuckle. Um, all three of these are very uplifting. So if I'm just wanting a perfume or something to make me feel happy and light, then I might use them that way. Um, If I feel like my immunity might be low, then I would reach for a different oil. Um, And if I'm feeling like just my energy is low, I would probably reach for something like a blue spruce that's known for... um, for really supporting the, the adrenal glands and your energy over a, a long term. Um, so it, I really, I, I choose them according to my need. I would say that in the beginning, I used a lot more essential oils than I use now. And I think the reason for that is that 
I'm somewhat saturated after having distilled for 11 years. I think that through through using them for all of these years, working with the plant material, being in the presence of the distillations, that I do have a lot of these constituents fairly saturated in my system. And um, this is this was quite interesting. Um, this is something that I learned from Kurt Schnabelt from the Pacific Institute of Aromatherapy. I went to one of his workshops years ago, and and one of the things that he mentioned was that when you look at at tribal societies, that they don't use essential oils, and really, they don't have the physical need that we do in societies where we don't live as closely with the earth. The reason for this is that they are eating the wild plants around them and they're eating the animals that eat the wild plants. And the animals probably eat, well, not probably, they eat a lot of the wild plants that we as humans can't consume. But, but the constituents from all these plants are in their system. So when you're eating those animals and when you're eating these plants that are in your environment, you're absorbing all the constituents and all the gifts that these plants have to offer that support your system for that environment, that, that help adapt you to the environment, that give you what you need for an enhanced immune system. But in our in our Western societies, and now, you know, most of the world's societies, we're eating plants that, for the most part, are cultivated, and um, and maybe they're plants that aren't native to the area that, that we live, which certainly in the States, you know, almost nothing of what we eat is, is native. So nothing that we're taking in really is connected to the adaptation, the human adaptation to the landscape and to the environment. So you think that the food we eat is regarding what we sh- the oils we should be getting in our environments? Well, what I'm saying is that if you're eating from your native environment, you are taking in, you are, you are getting very, very small amounts of essential oil in your system all the time. So like there in Ireland, if you're making teas from the herbs that are growing wild around you, you're getting small amounts of both water and and oil-soluble constituents out of your plants. And and these these are present in the environment to help the plants adapt to the environment. And when we use them, it's the gift from nature to help us adapt to the environment. So so the more that we eat from our environment, generally, generally the stronger we are. Is there a way that people can make these plants into oils themselves? Well, the last time that I was in Ireland, um, I was really very excited by the amount of um, oil, like beautiful oil plants that you have around you. And actually that, that reminds me of something else is that not all plants produce essential oils. Um, many plants only have water soluble constituents. It's really the aromatic plants that contain essential oils. So generally you can tell by rubbing the leaves of the plants. Sometimes the essential oils are carried in the roots of the plant. So um, say you were digging a root, you know, you might want to um, chop it and see what the aroma was like of that plant. So if, if you go out and you're walking around or taking a hike and you rub a plant and then your fingers smell like that plant, most likely this will be an essential oil-bearing plant. So this would be one that if you bought yourself a small distiller, you could work with. 
You could start experimenting with the plants around you. And this is something that lots and lots of people are starting to do. I think we're seeing the tip of the iceberg for artisan distillation. Um, it used to be that that really that that essential oil distillation mainly happened through commercial distilleries, and um, which you know usually would be associated with um, large field cultivation or. Um, depending on the time and the place, possibly with wild crafting. Um, but we're starting to see lots and lots of people buying small-scale distillers, such as ourselves, who bought the 20-liter unit 11 years ago. And, um, and then, you know, some people are using them just to make medicine and blends and perfumes for themselves and then other people go on to produce larger amounts that they can sell, they can sell themselves and and research and have small businesses. So I think we're just just seeing the very beginning of that. Um, and there are lots of companies that that are selling smaller distillers that you can find on the web now. In Morocco, they use the oils to make perfumes. Is there a way of doing that through essential oils? Oh, well, I mean, I, most of those are essential oil-based. Um, initially, the perfume industry was completely essential oil-based. It wasn't until the early 1900s that, that chemicals started to be synthesized. And so... Um, so yes, you know, if there's there's a very healthy essential oil industry in Morocco, um, in many places in North and South Africa, and well, actually now, um, gosh, in pretty much all over, <laughs> all over Africa, there are many more essential oil industries that are popping up, and um, so. You do have to be careful, though, about perfumes, whether they are all essential oil-based or whether they are blended with chemicals. Many of them are blended with chemicals or with, with synth synthesized essential oil constituents. That's very common. So, so, I mean, I guess it depends. Like, if you want a perfume that also has medicinal benefits, then you would pay attention to that. If you wanted a perfume just for the sake of perfume, then most likely, like anything that you would buy out of a department store is going to be, going to have synthesized chemicals. When you say synthesized chemicals, what chemicals are they? Um, well, for example, um, there, if you look at the chemical of analysis of an essential oil, and we'll just use uh, lavender, for example, because that's one that everybody knows. There are constituents in its chemistry, um, which are very high in its chemistry, which are responsible for the aroma of lavender. So then um, linalyl acetate is one, for example. Linalool is one, another, for example. So now those those constituents can be synthesized to smell just like natural linalool acetate or linalool. So they can be artificially produced. And something that frequently happens is that oils will be adulterated with these synthesized chemicals in order to extend the oils. So... So someone might produce so many gallons of lavender oil, but they would actually like to sell a lot more that still smells like lavender and that will, that will aromatically pass the test. So they might add synthesized linalool and, and stretch the oil that way. That's something that commonly happens. So... Anyways, I guess it depends on, you know, what you're wanting from your perfume, 
whether you need to look deeper into the ingredients in your perfume or not. Tell us about how oils get tested. After you distill your essential oil, um, you can take one to two mils and send that off to a chemist. And they do a test that's called a GCMS, and that stands for Gas Chromatography and Mass Spectrometry. The gas chromatograph is, is, is like a, it, a graph printout that a chemist knows how to read, but the average person does not. Then the mass spectrometry, sorry, these are hard words to say, that, that reads as a list of, of essential oil constituents. And so these are the chemical names of these constituents, and then it will show you the percentage of your oil. So say I've sent off a sample of my pinion pine oil, and it comes back and it says that it's um, 54% alpha-pinene and 13% beta-pinene. It means that of my oil, that that 54% of that oil is that one constituent. Then, But there might be 100 constituents in this oil. And the rest are, are usually very tiny amounts of things. Um, but this is what makes up the beautiful uniqueness of each essential oil. And it's really, it's like a galaxy where you see all these stars that the stars make up the galaxy well these tiny little constituents are like the stars in the galaxy of the essential oil and we actually don't even know what all of them are yet and frequently um, when I've looked at a, a the gas chromatograph of one of our oils frequently you know I'll see a, a peak on this graph and it, it will just say unidentified. So there are many, oil, many constituents that have been identified. And of those, really only a small amount have been researched to where we know what the medicinal benefit of, the, of that particular constituent is. There are many, many that have been identified where we don't really know what the physiological effect is yet. And then there are many that haven't been identified at all. So, um, so if you take um, an aromatherapy certification course, a longer a, a longer course, not a weekend workshop, but something that that um, where you actually delve into some essential oil chemistry, you can learn enough that you can take that the mass spectrometry and you can look at the constituents and you can have a basic idea of what the medicinal benefit of this essential oil will be. So Claire, can you add vodka or something that has a really clear quality to the essential oils and make as a perfume? I've never taken a, a specific perfumery course. Um, I know that many Many perfumes are alcohol-based, you know, usually the spray perfumes. Um, I've never done that myself. Most of the aromatic blends that I've done, um, I've made solid-based perfumes, which is a combination of, say, beeswax and coconut oil. Um, but yes, they're, they're used that way all the time. And, and they use... Rather than vodka, I believe people use a perfume alcohol, which probably has, has less aroma. I'm not really sure because I've never bought any myself, but I'm a, I would assume so that it's very pure and probably has the least amount of aroma that might interfere with your blend of essential oils. And how do you make your own perfume? Um, I will do an aromatic blend of the oils and then I will heat... Um, beeswax and a little bit of another material like um, oh shea butter or coconut oil or whatever 
whatever other materials might blend well with the essential oils that I've chosen. And then, so I'll heat those and um, melt them. And then you don't want to add your essential oils immediately because the heat will, will volatize them. So when it's just starting to solidify, then I might add my essential oils at that time. And then they'll be captured within the oil and the beeswax and um, not just volatile. So um, that's how I make my little perfumes. I've never um, developed a line, you know, with the label that I sell on the internet. I just offer my essential oils and co-distills that way. What oils and co-distills do you provide to people? Well, um, have seven different native junipers that we distill plus the alligator juniper wood and we have three different pines and two of which we distill their pine cones as well the white white pine and pinion pine cone Um, we distill four different native firs and um We have distilled two native spruces, although we just carry blue spruce on our website. And we have a number of native herbaceous plants that are very interesting. Um, We do three varieties of rabbit brush, and we do Mexican arnica, which is an amazing plant, and snakeweed, and... um, Gosh, what else? We have a handful of cultivated plants that we offer as well. A lavendine and rosemary cineal and eucalyptus. And see, I know that doesn't cover all of them, but we I think we have we have somewhere over 40 essential oils that we offer on our website. Oh yeah, there's uh, sages and artemisias as well. From those are more from the the more extreme desert regions. How do you collect all these oils? Um, being with them being so high up in altitude. Um, well, we wildcraft everything, and um, with the exception of the cultivated oils, of course. But um, some of them are high altitude, like the Arizona corkbark fir, the blue spruce common juniper and subalpine fir Um, and actually some of the other firs and pines are high altitude as well but generally um, some of them are close enough that we could drive there and back within a day oftentimes um, we have to do overnighters we'll we'll take road trips basically and um, and when we take the longer trips we often take a trailer along with us and we will collect the lower boughs of the trees, for example. And at the same time, we'll clean up any dead wood that's also hanging around on the bottom of the tree. So what this does is it actually benefits the tree. So, and, and it feels right for us for it to be a relationship of give and take with the plants that we're working with. I think it's very important to support the trees and the plants that we're working with. Because, I mean, well, with the trees, for example, once we've worked on a tree, that's usually it. There's no need to go back to that same tree again because there are plenty more out in the forest and and our permits cover fairly large areas. So, um, so basically, we're just cleaning up the tree, and then we move on to the next one. Um, with some of the herbaceous plants, we might visit those again. So, so we'll clip those in such a way to promote new growth next year and to benefit the plant itself. But then we'll often give the plant a rest, like maybe we'll only collect from that same plant once every other year to give it a chance to like fully rebuild itself. So um, anyways, you know, something that is also very important about this is that over time, you, you personally build relationship with the plants and 
then over a longer period of time, you build relationship with the forest, with a larger area of the landscape and an environment. And you slowly get to know this place. You get to know where the drainages are, where the hills are, where there are pockets of certain plants and pockets of different plants. And it's very satisfying to have this relationship with the landscape and with nature. It's something that I enjoy very much. And and we have seven regions that we go to on a regular basis. And then then other regions where, you know, we just visit once in a while. Um, but so we we collect in the northern Sonoran Desert and we collect on the Kaibab Plateau, which is the near the north rim of the Grand Canyon, fairly high elevation. We collect on the Coconino Plateau, which is near the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and it's about a thousand feet lower in elevation than the north rim. We collect um, on the San Francisco Peaks, which is near Flagstaff, Arizona, and then um, on the eastern side of the San Francisco Peaks is a completely different bioregion, completely different. It's far more arid and feel you can feel that you're closer to the desert in this area. And then traveling north from, from there, um, we go up through the Navajo tribal lands and we don't collect there, but we collect around the Vermilion Cliffs. And then um, east of us, we collect in a region called the Mogollon Rim, which is a high elevation region um, where we collect many of our conifers. And um, then we go in Arizona, we go as far east as the White Mountains. Claire, I want to say thank you very much for coming on to the show and sharing your story, your knowledge and experience. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. It was very nice talking with you. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.